with that, we'll go ahead and read this scripture, which is John 17. Um, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Uh, This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rebecca. Well, again, happy birthday, church. And uh, it it is a wonderful day to celebrate. Uh, In case you missed the very beginning, I want to be sure to let you know you're invited to celebrate with us. Uh, This is our second birthday as a church, and we have a picnic, which is now a, I guess, just a an awesome meal indoors uh, back in the cafeteria afterwards. So please stick around. We'd love to have you. Even if you didn't know it was happening, we got a little extra food just for you. Um, and we're so glad that you're here to join us. Uh, and it's, glad, it's great. It's awesome to uh, celebrate what God has done in these two years, uh, to celebrate what he's done in our lives individually and how he's knit a lot of us closer together and is building a community here, how he is even using our community to reach out and impact uh, the community around us, uh, to see him uh, glorify himself through us uh, in the community as, uh, as his name is, is, uh, is, is evident, is important to us, uh, as the gospel is, is lived out in our lives. Um, you know, it's exciting to also be kicking off, kicking off a new sermon series, and we do want to gather together so that we can grow closer to God and closer to one another, Uh, to grow closer to God and closer to one another, Uh, to have real intimate relationship with the God of the universe, and to have authentic, uh, to have meaningful relationships with one another. Uh, That's that's our desire. That's what is driving us. That's our desire uh, of of Jesus for him to give us, and that's Jesus' desire for us. That's even Jesus' prayer for us. That's even what Jesus prays for us in John 17. You know, Jesus did pray a lot. Most of the time when we see him pray, we don't know what he's saying. He's, he's off alone on a mountainside uh, early in the morning or late at night when everyone else has gone to sleep. We don't know what he's saying, but, but here in John 17, we get the longest stretch of, of his prayer with his heavenly father. It's like, almost like we're eavesdropping, except he lets us in. The eavesdropping, one thing about it is uh, there's a novelist named Jody Picot who says sometimes, uh, you know, with eavesdropping, it's the only way to find out the truth. Sometimes with eavesdropping, it's the only way to find out the truth. Now, uh, this, this happened uh, in the Lord of the Rings. Fro- uh, Sam, Samwise Gamgee, is like, uh, he's camped out outside Frodo's window. And he's listening in because Gandalf and Frodo are having a conversation. And, and Gandalf hears some, some rustling in the shrubs, and he pulls Samwise in and, and, and says, Confound it all, have you been eavesdropping? And Sam says, have you ever heard this? I, I ain't been dropping no eaves, sir, honest. I was just cutting the grass under the window there, if you follow me. And Gandalf says, well, it's a little late to be doing that, don't you think? Sam says, well, I heard loud voices. And what did you hear? Sam says, well, nothing important. I heard a good deal about a ring and a dark lord and something about the end of the world, but please don't, don't do anything. Don't hurt me. Uh, we find out the truth 
when, uh, when we eavesdrop, when we listen in. Uh, you know, there's another case, though, too, when uh, I think a month ago, a trust fund executive uh, was uh, called by his boss uh, when he was home, uh, you know, spending time with family. And after the phone call was over, uh, this trust fund executive and his wife had a bit of an argument about, about his boss and how he's not, you know, uh, respecting boundaries and calling when it's not necessary and just assuming that he can call whenever he wants. And, and there are some things said in that conversation that were less than flattering about his boss. Uh, well, it turns out after he hung up the phone, uh, he, his phone pocket dialed his boss back and his boss heard the whole thing and fired him. And the executive is now countersuing, of course, for invasion of privacy. I mean, there is something about eavesdropping where you're like, no, no, this is protected space. No one else is allowed to hear this. Uh, and, and yes, indeed, as the Scottish proverb says, eavesdroppers hear no good of themselves. Uh, like, that can happen if you listen in. But we're allowed in. Jesus allows us to listen in on this very intimate conversation he's having with his father. He, he allows his closest disciples and, in extension, us to listen in to what he's saying. And what is he saying? Is, is he saying things that are no good of ourselves? Is he saying unflattering things? Actually, with what, what, what's on his mind is, uh, is instead his heart towards the disciples that it's not critical but caring. That he isn't, Jesus isn't complaining about us, but he's contending for us. And as amazing as it is, Jesus alone with his father, speaking to his Abba, and he's about, this is the night before Jesus, by the way, in John 17, this is the night before Jesus dies. He knows that in just a matter of moments, he's going to be arrested. He's going to be abused. He's going to be accused. He's going to be condemned and crucified. And what's on his mind if it, if it were me, I'd just be thinking about that. But what's on his mind? What does he pray for? He prays for you and me. He prays for his disciples. So this fall, as we grow and we want to grow closer to God and closer to one another, if, if, if you want to know more about God, if you want to see him become a bigger part of your life, if you want to get closer to him, maybe you're thinking about him, checking him out for the first time, you know, that's what we're all about here at King's Cross. And if you want that kind of deep, intimate, authentic relationship with one another where you can grow in trust, and it's not just about what you bring to the table, but you can be yourself, that's what we're pursuing. We're not there. We're, not, we're perfect. We're not perfect at all. But that's what we're pursuing here at King's Cross. And if those are the things you want, then we're so glad you're here. Uh, and so I'm excited to dig into this text to you because, again, this is Jesus' heart and prayer for us. So today we're going to look at... Uh, at three things, that glory to go, glory to know, and glory to show. Glory to go, glory to know, and glory to show. First, glory to go. Uh, it, it, Jesus uh, is first in the, the first verse here, says, when Jesus had spoken these words. So before the prayer, there's a reference to these words that Jesus has spoken. And what he's referring to is in John chapter 14, 15, and 16. These are the words that we're talking about here. And what is Jesus saying? Well, if you go through 14, 15, and 16, it's all one discourse. It's all one conversation he's having with his disciples. And he's essentially repeatedly saying, I'm leaving. I'm about to go. And he says it several times, and you get the sense the disciples have no idea what he's talking about. Like, what do you mean you're going? Where are you going? 
And Jesus is saying, I'm going to my father's house, and don't worry, I'll prepare a place for you. I'll come back, and I'll come get you. I mean, he says it over and over again. This is where I'm going. Well, when he's about to depart, he's not essentially saying, you all have been nice, but you're also a pain, and I'll see you. Like, he's not, he's not saying, oh, it's just very nice to meet you, nice to work with you. I'm going to die now, and, uh, and I'm, you know, maybe I'll see you later. If that happens, that's great. No, he's about to depart when he's about to depart, Jesus shows them his heart. And when the father had spoken these words, he says, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you've given him. He looks with respect to his father. He longs for his father to be glorified. He says, glorify me that I may glorify you. And we can't pray that. We can't pray God glorify me because that would be unfitting for God to do so. Only God deserves glory, but because Jesus is the son of God, it is incredibly fitting for him to ask the father to glorify him, especially as he knows what is coming in the next 24 hours that he asked the Father, glorify me, that the Son may glorify you. And as he lets us in, I want to focus on the fact that he's letting us in because he's addressing what the disciples are about to experience. And what the disciples are about to experience is really our experience in life. That there's going to be all kinds of things that we face that don't seem like they should be. That uh, Jesus says, don't be troubled. I am leaving. You're going to feel my absence, but don't worry, I'll come back. But actually, while I'm gone, my spirit will be with you. That though I'm absent in body, I will be with you in spirit. And that's not like a, a new age kind of, he's not really with you. He's really with you in spirit. And he says, I'll go between you and help you love one another when it's difficult. I'll go alongside you when the world hates you. I'll go ahead of you and work in people's hearts, uh, in the hearts of those whom you love and whom you're telling about me. As he departs, he draws them closer. Through all these things that the disciples are about to face in John 14, 15, and 16 that he's telling them about, all these enemies and, and the the, you know, their need to be intentional about focusing on growing closer together. Uh, in all these things, he kind of paints a realistic picture of the Christian life. Now, we might think, you might have been told that if you, if you go to church and if you read your Bible and pray, that your life will get better. Uh, that, that that's a formula for your life getting better. Well, Jesus does make our life better, but not in that sense. He actually says at the very end, uh, in this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you, will, you should expect to have trouble. You should expect that things will not go the way they ought to go. You should expect that your expectations will have to be adjusted because they're not going to come true all the time. You should expect that people aren't always going to like you. You should expect that uh, as you try to grow closer to one another, that, that there'll be bumps in that road. Uh, you should expect that. But take heart, he says, for I have overcome the world. Um, in crisis, in challenge, in conflict, in persecution, or on mission, his disciples uh, need to know that he's going to be with them. Now, this is hard for us to, this is one of the hardest things, I think, in the Christian life to understand because when things don't go as planned, we intuitively think that maybe we did something wrong and God doesn't love us anymore. Uh, we did something wrong or maybe, maybe we feel like we didn't do anything wrong and God's holding out on us. 
He's left us. He's forgotten about us. And he knows that the disciples and us are going to feel that way. And he says in so many different ways in 14, 15, and 16 that I will be there with you. It's kind of like this. And I've been reading through uh, this lately with my kids. It's actually an audio book, and the kids love listening to it in the car. Um, But C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia series has a lesser-known book called A Horse or The Horse and His Boy. Not the boy and his horse, but the horse and his boy. And if you read it, you'll find out why, because it's a talking horse. But this boy named Shasta uh, was shipwrecked as an infant, washed ashore, and adopted by a fisherman who really was a terrible adopted father. Terrible adopted father. But eventually he escapes with this talking horse named Bree. and after they escape, they're chased by lions and run into the company of Erebus uh, and her horse, uh, which kind of begins that relationship that goes throughout the book. And then later on, at a different point in the book, he is, uh, is all alone in a very scary place. And while he's there, randomly, this house cat comes and cuddles up next to him, gives him comfort for the night. In the morning, the, the cat's gone. Then he is attacked by jackals, and there's a, a beast, a, a large lion, that chases the jackals away. Then he hears about a plot, and this is kind of, you know, stretching it out a little bit here, but uh, this is uh, speeding ahead. Then he hears about a plot of a, a, a rival nation to overthrow the king of that land, uh, to, to capture the palace, to, uh, to overthrow the king. And so he wants to go and warn that king, and he gets on his horse in their company, and they go, they travel as fast as they can to, to go warn the king, and while they're on their way, they're chased by a lion who, 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 um, who, for some strange reason, stops after a few minutes, chasing them entirely. Well, he, Shasta eventually gets to talk with this large voice. He hears this large voice who... Um, and he's talking with him, and uh, he says, well, don't you think it's so, bad, so much bad luck to meet so many lions that there was, um, you know, all these things that I've had, it's so unfortunate that I've been chased by so many lions. And the voice says, there was only one lion. And Shasta says, well, what on earth do you mean? Uh, I told you there were at least two the first night. And, and the, the voice says, well, there was only one, and he was swift of foot. Well, how do you know? The voice says, because I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued, I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave you the horses, the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you could reach King Luna in time. And if you read in the story, you know the horses were going fast, but not as fast as they could. And the lion scaring them caused them to go as fast as they could, and they, in fact, just barely were able to warn King Luna of the attack in time. And even before that, Shasta meeting up with Erebus was, was, a, was pivotal to Shasta eventually realizing that he's not some orphan boy, that he's actually uh, the lost uh, prince of the kingdom and heir to the throne. And the voice says, I was also the lion you don't remember, who pushed the boat in which you lay, an infant near death, shipwrecked, so that it came to shore where a man sat, wakeful at midnight, to receive you. There's so many ways that Jesus is saying, and this is a metaphor, obviously, the, the lion, all of this is a metaphor in the Narnia series for Jesus. 
Jesus is saying in John 17 that there are so many different ways that you will experience me being with you. It's not just my comforting presence like the little house cat, but sometimes I may... Sometimes I may orchestrate circumstances around you that seem unpleasant at the time, but they're so important and ultimately they're for your good so that you will find out someday that you're not just an orphan, that you are the son of a king. And Jesus, in other ways, sometimes even might uh, orchestrate circumstances where we feel frightened. I don't know. There's, when, when, we're, when I'm lazy... There's nothing pleasant about becoming unlazy. I, I don't know if that's the same for you, uh, but sometimes I need to kind of be kicked a little bit, uh, scared, whatever it may be. Um, and Shasta was not harmed in, when he was being chased by that lion, but it did kind of kick them into high gear, and they were able, uh, for their overall good, to reach the king in time and to warn him. Jesus works, he's saying in John 17, through so many different ways. So if you know Jesus, you are never truly misfortunate. There may may be many times he feels distant because of what's going on around you, but Jesus reminds his disciples and us uh, that he'll always be near us, that he, his glory is a glory that that goes with us. And in John 15, Jesus said this, that, you know, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, and he prunes so that it would bear more fruit And already you are clean because the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. Um, And whoever abides in me and I in him, he's the one who bears much fruit. That Sometimes we're pruned so that we can bear more fruit. And the pruning part, that's not pleasant. But it's for our good. And, and And it's for something even better yet to come. So there's a glory to go and then there's a glory to know. The Father has given Jesus authority to give life. And that eternal life is this. Now, you might ask, as we talk about a glory to know, uh, what is eternal life? You might say, well, eternal life is what begins after I die because I believe in Jesus. Eternal life is, is, is me, I don't know, you might think of yourself floating in the clouds or singing or uh, I don't know like what you want to do, uh, but you might think of eternal life as starting with death. But Jesus says something a little different, that eternal life is to know me. It's to know the Father and the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That eternal life, in a sense, in a very real sense, doesn't start when we die. It starts when we meet Jesus. That this this life begins now. And yes, when we die, we're finally free from sin and things get immensely better. But... Uh, it begins even now so that we're not just struggling through this life. Jesus invites us in to let us know that the Father's given me all authority. He's given me authority to give you, all who believe in me, eternal life. And eternal life is this, that you would know me. Now, how do we know Jesus? How do we know him? Because we can know about somebody, but it's, it's really being in relationship with them that lets you know. You know, when you have those those uh, security questions about others. When you, like, you could, you might, someone might be able to figure out who you are on paper. They might be able to steal your identity as far as all the facts about you, but if someone were to actually uh, ask, you know, someone you live with, someone who's known you all your life, there are certain things that only they will know. And when, only when you live with Jesus, only when you abide in him, only when you uh, have that relationship with him can can you begin to have this eternal life? And, and we see that Jesus uh, shows us the Father, that we see the Father through Jesus, and he shows us the Father through his words, his deeds, and his friends. 
through his words, his deeds, and his friends. So it's one way, I think, to describe it. First, through his words. When Jesus comes and he, and he speaks, whenever he spoke, he often was clarifying, not revising or changing, but expounding upon uh, how God's will for our life, how God wants us to live. And he also tells us with his words how so often we, we, we get it a little bit wrong. In fact, I was reading through the Gospel of Luke, and it was, it was kind of like Luke's Gospel is time and time again how the disciples got it wrong. And yet, and yet, and yet so many other ways on top of that, like what was right, what was good, how we should live uh, instead. That uh, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, you know, I tell you, you know, you, you think you're following, following God, you think you're obedient, but let me tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven that not just matches the most religious people around, but exceeds. And he says, you know you're not supposed to murder, and I, I know that. I haven't done that yet uh, so far. Uh, and uh, so that's good, right? Well, Jesus says, well, actually, when you have anger towards someone in your heart, that, that in your heart you're violating that command. And as, as we look at the law appropriately and listen to what Jesus is saying, we find out that actually obeying God's commands is not something we are able to fully do. That as we do it, God's word exposes our inability to follow it. And God's law drives us to needing a savior. And there's nothing like, like, like it's one thing if Jesus is this business partner where you do good and then he is supposed to bless you in return. But it's different when you're constantly in their debt and they constantly are saying, don't worry, I've got it covered. Don't worry, I've got it covered. And Jesus doesn't hold it over our heads. He, he forgives us freely. It overflows. Because the Father doesn't just want our obedience, he wants our hearts. And Jesus is always willing and eager to welcome us back. He knows that we need him. So there's his words, and that's a, a crazy fast summary. Uh, but also his deeds, that he healed the sick and cast out demons. He brought sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, new health to the leper. He did so much. And I think what that shows us about the Father, that the Father sees the brokenness that we face and he cares. And one day he promises that he'll make all things, including ourselves, new. And thirdly, his friends. You know, Jesus, you learn a lot about somebody by their friends, in a way. And Jesus was almost always, one commentator says, almost always either at a party, on his way to a party, or leaving a party. <laughs> and that's a lot about him. And who did he party with? Who did he spend time with? A lot of time, it was the people that, that uh, were, were not that good. Uh, the people who are, in fact, very not good. And what does that teach us about Jesus' heart? is that Jesus longs to spend time with you, not just spend time with you and tolerate your presence, but he wants to enjoy you, uh, to laugh with you, to celebrate with you, even when, and especially when, because we're not perfect, because that's the only thing we're ever always going to be is not perfect. In fact, we find that often we resonate more with the people that Jesus spent time with, with how, how they, they fail morally, and when we get that, that's when his fellowship means all the more to us. And so knowing Jesus in that way uh, is how we can start to experience eternal life. Um, because, you know, you might say, okay, 
Just tell me what to do. Give me a good Christian idea. Give me a, a list of things that makes a good Christian. And I'm saying if I gave you a list of things that seemed manageable, it wouldn't be an accurate summary of what Jesus taught. Because whatever those things are, God just wants your heart to be in it. I can ask for a list of things. Uh, maybe, you know, if Megan and I can ask for a list of things. You know, what, what is it that is going to make each other uh, happy? What, what makes me a good spouse? And, and we can do those things, but it doesn't make a close relationship unless we give each other our hearts. Same with Jesus. And not, he's not just waiting for us to come to us, but he is first growing close to us. He comes first to us. And instead of living duty-bound, we can start living free. Uh, you know, when we just live according to a list, I'll say this really quick, when we live according to a list, uh, it's also like a really hard, uh, what's the word, oppressive place, uh, um, stuffy, spiritually place to be. It doesn't feel very free. Uh, because if, if you don't always follow through on that list of what it means to you to be a good Christian, if you don't follow through on that, you're going to feel you're guilty. You're going to feel like you're not loved, like you're not free. And, um, you know, if you struggle with losing your temper, for example, you know, it's almost as if Jesus would be saying, uh, don't just focus on controlling your anger, but almost... Just, what are you angry about? Where's your heart in what makes you angry? Are you losing your temper because your day doesn't go as planned? I'm so guilty of that. Do you lose your temper when, uh, when, when your money dis disappears before you can spend it on what you wanted to spend it on? Uh, when your little kingdom you want to build for yourself has its construction plans disrupted? Uh, you know, so often I can get angry when my reputation is on the line. But he's saying, I want you to get I want you to care so much about my glory that, that you do become angry, but not for your own little kingdom, for, for my kingdom. And that is a completely different kind of anger. That's a completely different kind of anger that, that um, is also coupled with so much compassion. It's coupled with uh, tenderness for those who do wrong as well. But it's an anger that stirs you to action. It's, you know, C.S. Lewis... Also in the weight of uh, a sermon called The Weight of Glory, it says it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, not that our temper is, you know, we lose it too much. Actually, our desires are too weak, that we're half-hearted, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what, he meant, what is meant by the offer of a holiday, a vacation at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. This Jesus is one who didn't just go through life being good. He, when, when Peter was walking on the water towards him and began to sink, Jesus was right there to pull him up. Uh, and he feasted not just to fill his temporary physical hunger. He feasted with others so they could give himself as the bread of life to satisfy the eternal spiritual hunger of those he was with. Jesus intentionally went out of his way to meet the outcasts. And... Uh, so whether you believe in God or not, uh, this is, uh, you know, trying to be a good person can always keep you from getting closer to him. It's a burden you can't carry. And, and Jesus, in fact, in Matthew, says, give me that burden. Drop that burden down. 
that one of the, he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. That this glory to know him is to know him as one who, who receives the weary, who receives those who know that we aren't good. And he doesn't just tolerate us. He wants to party with us. And that's something that can sustain us, to bring eternal life into everything that we do in every corner of our lives. So we look at glory to go and glory to know. Finally, shortly, uh, glory to show. That he says that there is a glory he had before time began. He said, uh, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. That there's a glory he had before the world existed. And he says, I'm going to have that back. Uh, he says uh, that glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you. I glorified you on earth, doing everything you asked me to do. He lived a life of perfect, wholehearted obedience. And he seeks glory, not the glory that, that people can give one another. The glory that people give one another is, is, is contingent on, on, you, uh, on other people, I don't know, getting something back from us. But the glory that comes only from the Father. And And R.C. Sproul describes it this way. He says that Jesus put aside the eternal glory he had with the Father and made himself of no reputation by taking on the form of a human and becoming a slave, obedient unto death. There was no emptying of divine attributes, his holiness, his perfection, his goodness, but an emptying of prerogatives, an emptying of status, of exaltation, of glory, for the sake of redemption and for the sake of the ultimate glory of the Father. For these purposes, our Lord put aside his own glory for a season. We see this in Philippians 2, that he, uh, he uh, did not consider it something to be grasped as a quality with God, but made himself of no reputation. Uh, that he uh, did this uh, for the joy set before him. The, in Hebrews, it talks about the joy set before Jesus that he endured the cross, that he knew that this joy, this glory was going to be restored. And then we see also that, uh, that as he does this, we see in John, it's kind of outlined. The beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was with God. He was in the beginning. He even claims in John chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am. Uh, and in John 17, he says, uh, he says, you love me before the foundation of the world. In all these things, we see that there is something bigger than we imagined Jesus to be. But that glory, as I mentioned and alluded to before, would have to come through a cross. That glory would have to come through a cross. And in a strange way, Jesus glorifies the Father in a profound way through his crucifixion. You would think, no, wait a minute, isn't the cross a, 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 a place where Jesus was humiliated? I mean, isn't that like, like the opposite of being glorified? But actually, it's through Jesus' perfect obedience and surrender of his life for us, that God's love for us is made even bigger. His holiness is made even more magnificent because he wouldn't just say, ah, your sins don't matter. He says, not only do they matter, I'm going to take them on myself and take on the punishment they deserve. Another Narnia story. I haven't had them in months, so just let me do another one. Uh, 
But in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Edmund, one of these, these four children who find Narnia, is, he, he became, he's a traitor. He, he uh, betrays the other children, betrays Aslan. And the queen of Narnia, who's not really the queen, <clears throat> she wants to be the queen, Jadis. Uh, long story. You have to go back and read the backstory, but she's bad. And, uh, and she says, I have a right. Every traitor belongs to me as my lawful prey. And, and so... Uh, she has the right to kill Edmund, to execute him, but Aslan steps in his place. And as Lucy and Susan watched this happen, uh, they watched Aslan go towards this stone table, knowing that death awaits him. It says Lucy and Susan held their breaths, waiting for Aslan's roar, and and for him to spring upon his enemies and conquer them, but his roar never came. Instead, all of his enemies attacked him and tied him down and tortured him and made fun of him and brought him to the stone table. And indeed, Aslan did die on that table at the hand of the queen of Narnia. But the next morning, as the sun rose, the table broke, and Aslan was freed. He came back to life. And it was talking with the children in a context of a lot of joy, granted, because they had just seen him die, and now he's alive. In this wonderful conversation, they said, how did that even happen? How did it happen that you're back alive again? We saw you die. And Aslan says, this happened because though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge only goes back to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and darkness before time, she would have read a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. You know, Aslan even showed himself to be greater than he was before by the fact that death could not hold him because he proved by his, his resurrection that he had committed no treason, that he was that one. Of course, this is a picture again of Christ. That of the hundreds of people that witnessed Jesus alive after the thousands witnessed him die, prove that death could not hold him because he was the spotless lamb of God, the one who takes our sins upon him, upon himself. And he says, indeed, let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would tell you, but I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'll come back to take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And he sends us his spirit to be with us every day. You know, F.F. Bruce says this, uh, because, you know, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, on the top of the cross, there was a sign that Pilate put there, uh, the, 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 the regional governor there. And Pilate insisted that there be a sign that says, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And some of the Jews said, you shouldn't put that there. Uh, but Pilate says, well, what I've written, I've written. So as Jesus died, he's literally being proclaimed to be king. And by his death and resurrection, he's proclaimed to be truly that king. Jesus invites us into this place, into this conversation he's having with God. This is just the beginning of this conversation he's having with his father. This conversation he's having where he's asking his father that we would grow closer to him and grow closer to one another. He prays this as one who himself came all the way from heaven to earth to be close, that we could be with him. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us as you do. We thank you that your love was, uh, would not stop at simply being, simply giving us good advice. Uh, but Father, your love went so far that you would become one of us, that you would take our penalty upon us, that we who so often, yes, Father, we do not keep the Ten Commandments as your Son teaches them at all. Uh, in fact, Father, we need your forgiveness. We need your mercy. Father, we rejoice that your mercy and forgiveness are free and abundant. We pray that you would help us to understand uh, and realize that that's really the terms of your relationship with us, that, that really we don't have to impress you, that really that we don't have to be uh, good at a certain level for you to finally love us, but uh, Father, that you love us as we are. And Father, may that compel and propel our hearts to be even more devoted to you and to want to obey you and want to glorify you. And it's for your glory that we pray this. In Jesus' name, amen.